You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do call on you and ask that, Father, you would be pleased to teach and instruct us as we come to these difficult passages. That, Father, you would open these passages up to our hearts and our hearts to these passages. That not only would you teach us what these things mean, that you would teach us your purpose in giving us these passages but that, Father, you would give us, um, give us the grace to implement these things in our lives, Father. Uh, these glorious things that are here, Father. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, this morning, what I want to do is I want to put another coat of paint on some of the places we've been. Um, we do need another coat of paint. Taking back, looking at what we've done, it, it looks good, but it needs another coat. It'll probably need several more coats. And I think you know what I mean. I had a professor in seminary and said, learning is like painting. You know, you, you, you don't want to put all the paint on the wall at one time. What happens? It all runs to the floor. Uh, you put on just a light coat at a time. So uh, I, want to, I want to put another coat of paint on the wall of where we have been last week. And I want to press just a little bit further into Paul's uh, discussion, uh, moving all the way to the end of verse 5. That'll be plenty for us this morning. Now, in order to go forward, we should go backward just a little bit to verse 20. Uh, that glorious verse right there where Paul says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And I've made a lot of noise about this passage, and we need to make a lot of noise about this passage uh, because the truth of this passage is that God's grace is greater than our sin. And we have to know this. We, we cannot make progress in holiness without this knowledge. I don't care what your sin is. It doesn't make any difference what our sin is. Someone might say, well, you don't know about my sin. There's a lot of things I've not told you understandably there's lots of things I've not told you either uh, we all have these secret places in our hearts we all have these things in our heart the last thing we want is anyone to know about them God knows them all they're all before him he sees it all he knows it all and here is the glorious news of the gospel is that the grace that's in Christ Jesus is greater not only than all of your stuff and all of my stuff but it's greater than all of our collective stuff. And what could be a greater truth than that? What that means is we can come to him. We can come to him. You really can come to him. 
we're inclined to say, no, I, I'm going to come to him, but I can't come to him like this. I'm going to have to first, if I can do a couple of things, then I'll come to him, but I can't come to him like this. No, you have to come to him just like this. Now, who's going to come to him until we understand that his grace is greater than our sin? His grace is greater than our mess. His ability, his power is greater than what we've got all twisted up and made a mess of. We've got to understand that. Now, given such a glorious truth as this, you can be rest assured that the evil one is going to do everything he can to twist and distort and confuse this. He's going to be constantly working to, if he can't dismiss it altogether, you know, you could probably listen to a thousand sermons today, not hear this one single time. If he's not going to dismiss it altogether, then he's going to confuse it. He's going to distort it. He's going to twist it clear out of shape to where it's not the gospel at all. And the apostle Paul knows that. And that's why we have chapter six, by the way. That's why we have chapter six. What is Paul doing at the beginning of chapter six? He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What is he doing? He's, he, he knows that this is going to get twisted. He knows that this is going to get all bent out of shape. So he's anticipating this and he's already calling uh, an objection. He's already calling it here. He said, what's he say? Shall we go on? You know, if, if God's grace is greater than our sin, if, our, if, if, the, if the law come that sin may increase and as sin may increase, God's grace abounded all the more, then why not go sinning and carrying on so that we can, we can enjoy God's forgiveness afresh in even greater capacity over and over again? Why not do this? Uh, why not continue to sin that grace may abound, asks the Apostle Paul. How does he answer it? He gives us two answers, really, if you, if you want. I mean, his first initial answer is by no means, isn't it? Meganoita. Meganoita. I can quote that so freely because I used to use that on my test when I was in seminary. It's such an emphatic no that a lot of the exams I took in seminary were essay questions. And some of those essay questions would involve heresies, would involve this and involve that. And they might ask, do you believe in such and such? If yes, state why. If no, state why. And uh, to answer uh, some of those questions, I would want to make it very clear to the professor that I do not believe in these things. And I would write in the Greek, meganoita, which they would certainly understand what I'm saying. They would say, perish the thought. God forbid. Uh, it's a very, the, 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 the uh, language that Paul's using right there in verse two is very strong language. That's the first answer he gives. But the second answer he gives is extended. It's an explanation. It's an explanation. And that's what we're getting in Romans six. We're getting an explanation. I mean, Paul could have just said, by no means, perish the thought. And moved on to Romans 7 or moved on to Romans 8 uh, for that matter. In fact, if you look at Romans 5 and you look at Romans 8, you could actually see continuity between Romans 5 and Romans 8. Do it sometime. Just read, read 12 through 21 of Romans 5 and pick right up again in Romans 8. Sometime this afternoon, you'll see the flow of thought just right through. But Paul's giving us an explanation as to why we should not go on sinning that grace may abound. And that sets us up for the second half of verse two, which we looked at last week. Paul asks the question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And last week we said, okay, 
Um, what is this death to sin? Well, it's a death to the reign of sin, if you will. Remember our discussions in Romans 5. That's, that's the immediate context here. If you go back to Romans 5 and verse 12, we're told that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Uh, we've looked at this very thoroughly. Adam rebels in the garden. When he rebels in the garden, what happens? The world falls into the realm of sin and death. It falls into the realm of sin and death. Now, what happens when a person becomes a believer in Christ Jesus? They're extracted from that realm. We're literally extracted from this, if you will. We're taken from the realm of sin and death and we're put into the realm of grace and life in Christ Jesus. You're transplanted. You're, you're, you're taken out of one realm and you're put into another. And I'm going to throw a couple terms out here at you. And if you don't understand these terms, don't worry about it. Lord willing, we're going to talk more about these terms next week. But I want to throw them out there. I mean, part of learning something is hearing it over and over again. And I want you to understand that, uh, that this death to sin that Paul's talking about is not ontological. It's not physical. You may say, well, the physical part I think I get, but this ontological part, okay, I won't go a lot into explaining that today. But let me just say that ontology, ontological, it pertains to nature. It pertains to the nature of being, if you will. And that's enough for this morning. But next week, Lord willing, when we get to Romans 6, we're going to be confronted with that really um, head on. We'll need to talk about that when we get to Romans 6. But for right now, I want to say that this death to sin is not ontological. It's not physical. It is forensic and it is spiritual. And you might be saying, well, Okay, the forensic thing, I remember that. You've been talking about forensic. I don't remember exactly what that is, but I remember that one. See, that's how we learn. Uh, and as soon as I start talking about forensics, you're going to quickly say, oh, okay, forensic, that's the courtroom thing. Yes, it's the courtroom thing. You know, think of forensic science, you know, the CSIs, you know, they go in, the crime, uh, crime science units, you know, they, they go in and, they, and they, they gather all of this info that's used for what? For taking into a court of law. And we have talked about this idea of forensic, of a declaration. Let me use the illustration that I've been using. Suppose that I am on trial and you're the jury. My, uh, the prosecuting attorney makes his or her defense and then my, uh, or, or they, they, they prosecute me, they make their prosecution and then my, my attorney, he or she makes uh, my defense and then you, the jury, you decide whether I'm uh, whether I'm uh, guilty or innocent. Now, in making the decision of whether I'm guilty or innocent, are you making me guilty or innocent? You're not. You're trying to decide whether I already am guilty or innocent, correct? That's a forensic, it's a declaration. We need to understand this. God is declaring us to be out of this realm. He's declaring us to be out of the realm of Adam. He's declaring us to be into the realm of Christ. Let me give you an illustration to try to bring this up. Okay, Let's think of Adam in the garden. Right after Adam sins in the garden, what happens? God told him, if you eat from this tree, you will die. Now, does Adam die immediately when he eats the fruit from the tree? Does he die physically? No, not immediately. 
but he does die spiritually. And a declaration is made. There's a forensic declaration made. He is declared guilty, isn't he? And not only is Adam declared guilty, but all who will descend from Adam is declared guilty by that act, right? Okay, there's a physical death that's awaiting. It'll come many, many years later. Adam lived to be a very, a very long time. But his body begins to be in a state of decay at this point. So there's a death awaiting. There is a physical death awaiting, but there's an immediate spiritual death that takes place. And here's the thing. Adam is now in a new position and he's now in a new condition, isn't he? He has been declared guilty. That's his new position, okay? That's a forensic declaration. But he's also in a new condition. He's sinful. He's, he's a rebel at this point, isn't he? And all who are born in Adam share in his position. And guess what? We share in his condition. Does that make sense? That's living in Adam. That's living in the realm of sin and death. Now, the true believer, verse 2, has died to sin. Paul says, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Now, what is Paul talking about? He's saying, listen, when you were in Adam, this is all that you could do because you are in his position and you're in his condition. But faith unites you to a new head, doesn't it? You're now by faith united to Christ and faith unites us to Christ. And when we're united to Christ, God makes a new declaration, doesn't he? Just as he declared us all guilty in Adam, by faith in Christ, he now declares those who put their faith in Christ, what? Righteous. And guess what? Not only are we in a new position, we're in a new condition. You see that? And Paul's saying, what's the matter with you guys? You're suggesting that we go on sinning? How can you who died to sin continue in it? Now that you're in a new position and a new condition. Now I'm adding the words position and condition to help us see what's going on here. But that's what's going on here, isn't it? It's exactly what's going on here. Our union with Adam has been severed. So we're not to continue walking the way Adam walked. Because we've been brought into union with Christ. And now, now that we have this new condition and this new position, we're to walk as Christ. We walk as our head. We once walked like Adam. Now we walk like Christ. Now, notice what Paul does in verse 3. He says, do you not know? And I kind of joked last week of saying, well, you know, Paul, <laughs> Not really, we don't. Uh, we really don't know. Um, there's lots of things about the Bible we don't know, isn't there? Uh, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now, Paul here is referring to uh, water baptism. And I said last week that baptism 
uh, refers to the believer's conversion experience. Paul is referring to what we call uh, regeneration. You'll hear that word sometimes. What's that mean? That means you get a new heart. You get a new spirit, you know, to use uh, uh, Ezekiel's language. You know, Ezekiel 36, God says, a new heart I will put into you, a new spirit I will put into you. You know, we might say it's our eyes have been opened, our ears have been opened. Uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless a person is born again, he cannot even what? See the kingdom of God. So it's this rebirth, this regeneration, uh, this new life. And this is a good time as any to uh, talk about what is referred to as baptismal regeneration. Has anybody ever heard that term before? Baptismal, show of hands. How many have referred? Baptismal regeneration refers to this. That upon baptism, upon uh, going into the water or being sprinkled with the water or having the water poured on you, uh, you are then regenerated uh, by mechanically by that, uh, that ritual, if you will. Paul's not teaching that here. Uh, we might say, uh, a person might read this and say, well, you know, Rick, um, baptism is being used causally here. It's being used instrumentally here. Uh, you shouldn't be so quick to say that. Uh, well, this gets a little bit confusing. Baptism is being used instrumentally here. But here's the thing. Let's not forget the context. What's the context? When we're trying to figure out what the Bible means, what, there's three things that are important. Context, context, and what? Context. For three chapters, four chapters, Paul's been arguing forcefully that salvation is by what? Faith. Alone. Most people will say, yeah, salvation is by faith, but they won't agree with the alone part. Like, go back to Romans 4. Look at, look at uh, Romans 4, verse 1, just for sake of a review. You remember how carefully we went through these verses when we were back there. Paul says, what shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was what? Anyone. It was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God, you see. And it was counted to him as righteousness. What Paul is doing is he's pointing to the sign of the new covenant here when he makes reference to baptism in Romans 3. He's pointing to the sign of the new covenant. He can do that because he realizes that his audience that he's writing to, when they hear this idea of baptism, they're going to go, oh, yeah, you're talking about, yeah, you're talking about my conversion here. You're talking, you're talking about this whole conversion faith experience of when we were converted, uh, when, when we were converted to Christ. The baptism is a sign of the new covenant. What is the new covenant? The new covenant promises that if you put your faith in Christ, that you are going to be taken, uh, united to Jesus, taken to him. Your sins are going to be forgiven you. you have, you're going to be brought into the family of God. That's what the new covenant teaches, isn't it? By faith, baptism is a sign. Now, Paul in verse four begins to explain just what actually happens. He says that in verse four, that we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. Now, the word buried is very fitting. I mean, a burial is fitting when a death has occurred, isn't it? When a death has occurred, a burial is very fitting. 
Uh, and I, I want to introduce to you a term you're going to like. This is a real technical theological term. You're going to like this one, okay? Yeah, we'll all say it together, okay? Witness. Not witness. W-I-T-H-N-E-S-S. -S. Can we all say that together? Witness. Is that a cool term or what? I love it. Witness. Say witness. What is witness? Well, it's what we have here. Witness. Look at the word with. We were buried there for what? With him. There is this witness. When we become believers, our faith takes us with Jesus into his death. I mean, uh, let me use this word witness, if you will. We're with him. We're with Christ in his death, right? Somehow, mysteriously. Uh, we're going we're gonna to tease that out a little further. We can only go so far with this, but I'd like us to go as far as we can with it. But our faith actually unites us to Jesus. It brings us to Jesus. It connects us to Jesus in such a way that we're with him in his death at Calvary. And we're with him in the tomb. Witness. Do you like it? Uh, we're with him. Now, look at verse 4. Now, we're going to start moving into some new ground here. There's a purpose phrase, a purpose clause. Uh, some of you English majors are saying, yeah, it's the word in order that, that phrase in order that. Uh, one of our English majors is smiling at me right now, saying I'm not an English major. But this phrase, in order that, in order that. Uh, what is in order that? It's telling us that there's a purpose, right? In other words, this has happened in order that this will happen, right? Does that make sense? Okay, I've done this in order that this will happen. Or this has happened in order that, you know, this will happen. A has happened in order that B will take place. Make sense? So we have this in order that, okay? In order that. Well, Paul is saying that we were buried with Christ by baptism into death in order that, skip clear to the end, that we too, in other words, we also, might walk in what? Newness of life. Newness of life. Uh, newness of life. What, what does all that mean? What does it mean to walk, first of all? When the Bible speaks of walking, what does it mean? Oftentimes, it speaks of living, uh, of a lifestyle. Uh, this is how we live. Uh, so here we have this new lifestyle, this new way of life, this new manner of living, and then we have this newness of life. What is this newness of life? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, if anyone's in Christ, he is what? A new creation. A new creation. Uh, we have a new heart. We have a new spirit. We've been brought into a new kingdom. Let's think about the realm. The realm is a great way of looking at this. We've been extracted out of the realm of sin and death out of the kingdom of sin, out of the kingdom of death, if you will. And we've brought, been brought into what? The kingdom of Christ. Now, in these two kingdoms, there's a completely different set of values, isn't there? I mean, the value system in the, in the, in the kingdom of Adam, if you will, the value system in the world, is, it couldn't be more opposite than the value system in Christ. Amen? And we have been extracted. Those who... By faith, those who are believing in Jesus are united to Jesus in his death. 
that we may die to that old realm and then be brought into this new realm in Christ Jesus in order that we might walk in accordance with a whole new set of values, right? Does that make sense? That we might walk in newness of life. Now look at verse five. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, now here we have an if and then clause, if you will, okay? An if and then. Okay, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Okay, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, here's a mystery. If you haven't had enough mystery already this morning, I got a mystery for you, okay? Here's a mystery. When was the believer united to Jesus? When were you, you as a believer, when were you not united to Jesus? When? Were you united with Jesus at Calvary 2,000 years ago? Or were you united to Jesus uh, upon uh, your placing your faith and trust in him? When were you united with him in his death and his burial and uh, his resurrection? And some of us are scratching our chin, like saying, well, I want to say one, but then I have to say the other. And I don't know. And you'll like this in theology. A lot of times in theology, one of the things... I studied with an engineer, and I have an electronic engineering background too, so I used to, I'm not really bothered like when the answer is yes and yes, like it is right now, yes and yes. But this used to bug my friend Mark to no end. You know, he designed bridges and things. And uh, can a bridge hold 60,000 pounds? The answer is yes or no. You know, uh, in theology, you have this yes and yes, and it used to drive him nuts, and I knew it used to drive him nuts, so I used to push those buttons all the time. It was a lot of fun. When were we united to Jesus? Were we united to him at Calvary? Were we united to him upon conversion? Yes. My friend Mark would go, what? I'd say, yes. I don't think for a nanosecond Jesus went to the cross not knowing who he went to the cross for. Does anybody here think that? All the Father gave to me will come to me. And those who come to me, I'll never, I'm not going to lose any of them. I'm not going to lose a single one of them now. How can he say that if he didn't know who we were? The shepherd knows his sheep. And in the sense, when Jesus goes to Calvary, he, he takes us with him, doesn't he? Whose sin is he bearing at Calvary? The accounting of the, the penalty that he's paying for. Whose sin is it? So the, the answer is yes, but that having been said, the application of this salvation is not applied to us until the time in which we place our faith in Christ, right? So the answer again is yes, isn't it? It's kind of neat, isn't it? Some It might bother some of you and understand why. The answer is yes and yes. Um, what's my... What's my point? Um, well, our, our death with Christ, it looks back to Calvary, right? Our death with Christ. Paul says in verse five, look at verse five again. We have been united with him in a death like his. Notice it's a past tense. It's looking backwards. 
But then Paul says, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Okay, what is the resurrection? Here's another one of those theological questions. Is the resurrection Paul's referring to, is it a new reality now? Or is, he, is Paul referring to the resurrection of all believers the, at, at his second coming? Which is it? Is it now or is it in the future? Some of you are saying, you're not doing this to me again. I'm saying, yes, yes. And you got the answer correct. <laughs> Isn't that neat? It's important that we understand that it's yes and yes. If we want to overcome sin in our lives, we have to understand that it's yes and it's yes. And this is the best part. This is the part that this is the part that I was really smiling about when I told my wife like, yesterday morning, still trying to sort this out where we were going to go with the sermon and, and prayer is always so important in that. Finally, after about 45 minutes, I came in and told Tammy, I said, man, I can't wait to preach tomorrow. I got a message. I got a message. And this is it. I mean, this is it. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 6. Just turn forward a little bit to Ephesians 2, verse 6. Because sometimes the Apostle Paul speaks of, the, of this resurrection in the present. Look at, look at chapter 2 and verse 6. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. We're told there that God what? God, Paul's speaking to believers. This is written to believers. That's who the us is here. What is Paul saying? What is, what is Paul? Paul saying is God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, how did he do that? It's no less than the same resurrection power that we use to raise Jesus from the dead. That same resurrection power is used in the heart of the believer when he or she becomes united to Christ. That resurrection power is a present reality that we enjoy now. And if we don't understand this, we're going to make no headway in overcoming sin in our lives. That resurrection power is ours now. But if we go back to, uh, back to chapter 6, verse 5, Romans 6, verse 5, Paul's speaking in the future tense there, isn't he? He's saying we shall be we shall certainly be united to him in a resurrection. You see, there's a lot of power in that too. There's power in that too. Because that tells us where we're going. That tells us where we're headed. That tells us that one of these days, Christ is going to return. And our souls provide, I mean, if we're alive when Jesus, Jesus returns this afternoon, he's just going to take us to be with him. And we're going to get those glorified bodies, those resurrection bodies. Uh, we're going to get them today if he returns today. Uh, if he doesn't return for another hundred or a thousand years or whenever, uh, then our soulless uh, or our bodiless souls will be, re will be united to our glorified bodies. Uh, uh, but either way, what we understand here is that we have the greatest of future. We have such a great future. And you've heard me say this a hundred times. This is nothing new. Now, let, let me make application of all of this. How, how should we apply this? Uh, what, what should we do with this? Well, um, for this, I, I, I really owe this whole application here to, to the writings of John Calvin, namely in the fourth book of his Institutes, you know, where Calvin will say 
Uh, he's commenting on verses 3 to 5. And here he says that the Apostle Paul is calling us all to be imitators of Christ. Imitators of his death and imitators of his resurrection. And we'll say imitators of his death. Well, yeah. Think of Jesus at Gethsemane. What does Jesus do in Gethsemane? He realizes what's coming ahead. And he says, Father, if there's some other way, please take this away from me. Namely, the crucifixion. Take this away from me. But he's resolved to follow the Lord's will, isn't he? He says, not as I will, but as you will. That's a death to self. Okay. And then Calvin says, but Paul's also calling us to imitate his resurrection and this whole idea of newness to life. Well, what do we do there? Well, we imitate Christ in the respect that Jesus, he walks in, in, in newness of life. We, that, that's this whole idea of, of walking in holiness, you know, of walking in holiness. And imitation, the power of imitation, I mean, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 1, Paul tells us, he tells us to be imitators of him as he is an imitator of Christ. The scriptures call us to imitation. And uh, this week I've been thinking about this a lot. And when Tammy and I went away on Sunday, we listened to a number of sermons on the way out to Erie. And this is what I was hearing in most of the sermons was this idea of imitation. Is the idea of imitation biblical? Yes, it's biblical. Uh, I heard uh, a, a message on encouragement, you know, where the, the speaker begins to talk about encouragement and shows a couple of verses from Scripture where we're called to be encouraging and uh, then makes reference to a couple of, of uh, 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 biblical characters, one in particular uh, who was very encouraging. And then picks on a, a famous dead guy who was very encouraging and takes an extract from that person's life uh, and uh, then um, calls a second time to be encouraging. This is kind of the nuts and bolts of the message as I remember it. And then closes in prayer. Now, is that the gospel? Has the gospel been preached? Calvin would say no. Calvin doesn't stop with imitation. The best part is what Calvin refers to next when he refers to the twig being engrafted into the vine. Paul's going to use the same language in Romans 11 in a different context, but none of us are farmers here. Uh, none of us are, are, are tree farmers that I know of. But apparently you can take a, a twig and you can actually engraft it into a, a vine. Does anybody know how to do that? Does anybody know anything about that? I only know it from reading it in books. But apparently someone skilled can take a twig and engraft it into a vine and the twig will live. Um, how is that possible? Well, Calvin points to this. He says, well, that, that twig lives because it receives nourishment from the vine. Actually, he refers to the root. That it, it, it receives nourishment from the root, you see. Paul is not simply calling us to be imitators. We're, called, we're being called to be imitators. There's nothing in the biblical about that. But it goes, it stops short of the gospel. You see, the good news of the gospel, this wouldn't be good news if the gospel went like this. Look at Jesus. He lived a great life. And look at the things that he did. Uh, 
Look at him at his greatest. Now be imitators of him. I can't tell you how many sermons I've heard that go just like that. I was listening, been listening to these messages on the Catholic station. That's how they go. That's how they always go. Just like that. You listen to messages on the Protestant stations. That's how they go. Just like that. That's not the gospel, friends. They speak nothing of being engrafted into the vine. Jesus says, I am the, I, you are the branches and I am the what? The vine. You see, a branch without the vine can try to imitate the vine all at once, but it's going to lay on the ground dead, isn't it? Lifeless. If we apply that to ourselves, apart from Christ, we're going to lay on the ground dead and in the realm of Adam. But what Paul wants us to see is say, you've died to that death. You've died to that. And you have now been brought into You've been engrafted into Christ. Yes, we're to call to be imitators of Christ's death. Jesus says, well, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me daily, right? Sure, we're to do that. But how do we get the power to do that? To tell people to do that Sunday in and Sunday out without extracting them of where the power comes from is pastorally cruel. Because it does two things. One it either leads us to complete and utter despondency or it makes it, it turns us into a bunch of Pharisees who think we've arrived. Those are the two roads you're going to go down. But that's not the gospel. What Paul wants us to see is that our faith in Christ has united us with him in his death. Withness. You like that word? Withness? We're with him in his death and we're with him in his resurrection. And not all of this resurrection stuff is for the future now. This resurrection power is going on right now. And it's empowering us for the express purpose of walking in newness of life. Can you see that in verse 4? We were buried therefore with him by baptism and the death in order that what? Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we also might walk in newness life. Where does that power come from? It comes from the vine. Who is the vine? It's Christ, isn't it? Well, it's a second coat of paint, right? Still see some places showing. We got some more to do, don't we? Okay, I think that's enough for today. What do you think? Heavenly Father, we pray for your grace in these matters, Father. We pray, Father, that you will continue to teach us, to lead us, to guide us through these difficult passages that are so glorious. Uh, Father, we, we reject any notion of baptismal regeneration, that we could be regenerated simply by going through a ritual, Father. And we see that, Father, salvation is by faith and it's by faith alone. And that it is a faith that unites us to Jesus in his death. It unites us to... Jesus in his resurrection, his resurrected glory, that we may too walk in newness of life. So, Father, we thank you for this great gospel truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.